Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome 2023. This week, Cultivating Place kicks off a multi-part series devoted to the global conservation efforts collectively known as 30 by 30, multifaceted commitments by governments, agencies, and localities across the globe to securely preserve 30% of our world's biodiversity by 2030. While President Joe Biden committed to the goals of a 30 by 30 conservation concept within a week of taking office in January of 2021, the state of California had already committed to the vision in late 2020, with Governor Gavin Newsom's signing of the executive order N8220, outlining and financially supporting the state of California to preserve 30% of its land and water biodiversity, as overseen by California's Secretary of Natural Resources since 2019, Wade Crowfoot. The first in our series of conversations with people engaged in envisioning and engineering the 30 by 30 conservation projects coming from federal, state, and local levels, and we hope into our very backyards, is with Jennifer Norris, the Deputy Secretary for Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency, where she leads the state's 30 by 30 initiative, being carried out by many agencies and organizations, and she oversees cutting green tape in support of landscape scale habitat restoration. Jennifer, it is such a pleasure to welcome you today, and I am so excited to talk about the work you are doing. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'm grateful for the invitation. So I've introduced you a little bit. I would love you to introduce yourself to listeners the way you would like to be introduced on a more personal basis, perhaps, and the way that plants figure in your life. Well, sure. Um, I think I'd like to describe myself as, well, I'm a conservationist, but fundamentally, I believe that all conservation problems are are people problems or people mm-hmm. opportunities. So I, I really believe in bringing people power to solving the problems of our time. And so um, I'm a collaborator. I, I love working with others and finding creative solutions how do trees fit in? I mean, for me, I was thinking about trees and thinking about our conversation coming up and um, and just plants in general and how we, th- we think of our landscapes in terms of the vegetation and how fundamental to the way we understand our world vegetation is. Even if you're not someone who can identify a tree, you experience your world through these three-dimensional green creatures that Mm. um, occupy our scenery and our landscape. And for me, I'm someone who's been known to actually uh, have conversations with individual trees because they Mm. just have so much power and space um, in my world. And I just revere plants in just a really deep way and recognize how important they are in bringing, connecting the soil to the air uh, and to all the species that are out there. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I, um, I love that that is part of what informs your idea 
and ideal of conservation. Mm. Define for me, if you will, what you mean when you use that word conservation. Well, for me personally, it embodies this this very deep understanding that I think comes from ecology that we are incredibly dependent. We are fundamentally dependent on the natural world and all of the creatures in it. And so conservation is at its core about protecting the biological diversity of our planet, which drives the life support systems that we rely on. Okay. And there's a lot to to get into in terms of 30 by 30, what it is, where it came from, all of that. But before we go there, tell us a little bit about your earliest influences and, and who were the people and the, the places and these plants that you have had conversations with that have <laughs> grown you into this person uh, who would be leading this massive undertaking to propel conservation at a previously unheard of scale. Yeah, well, I I grew up, you know, in the suburbs of New York, and for most of my childhood, you know, I enjoyed the outdoors, but it was more scenery to me. You know, it was what you saw out the window or, you know, what you enjoyed when you went outside, but I didn't really understand the natural world in a deep way, but I had this incredible opportunity to go to a state of California environmental education camp, and these camps, they still exist there are three or four of them in the Catskills, and they take kids from all over the state, mostly from the city, and give them a week um, in the outdoors. And I went aging myself, but it was, you know, the late 70s. Um, so the environmental movement was, you know, pretty, there was a lot of hippie, hippie ideas there. But um, <laughs> we went and, you know, I spent a week, I got to go and I spent a week really appreciating just you know, one, just the peace and joy that being outside and, you know, engaging with a river or with trees or a forest or a mountain can bring to you. But also, you know, learning about how food webs work and about, you know, not wasting the food you eat, etc. And that week changed my life trajectory. Fundamentally, I, I felt like I had come home to mm like a place where I really felt at home. I, f I felt at home with the people, with the ideas, with the space. And I kept going back and I committed myself to, I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my camp counselors and they had all gone to Cornell University to the natural resource program. And mm -hmm. so I set my sights on that at age 11. And that's great. By the time I was you know, 17, there I was. And honestly, I've never looked back. Um, and I've just had so many great mentors over the years who've, helped me grow and, um, you know, sort of move on to the next job and the next job. Um, and somehow magically I landed here, which is just a, a dream. Yeah. So you, you start at Cornell, you go on to get, uh, your degree in, uh, conservation biology. Was that from Cornell? Cornell was environmental policy. Okay. Um, and then I got a master's degree from the university of Michigan, uh, school of natural resources, and then I got a PhD in theoretical ecology from the University of New Mexico, um, studying birds, actually, and landscape ecology and habitat. And then um, eventually landed uh, working for the, worked briefly for the state in New Mexico, but then I got a job with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service working on endangered species issues um, 
there for several years and then uh, moved to California in 2009 and kind of bumped around at the Fish and Wildlife Service for another, I don't know, 10 years or so, and then um, jumped over here to the state. Wow. And so at what point, let's just, we'll, we'll move right into this, this fabulous title mm-hmm. and all that it entails, because it is not just a fabulous title. It's a, a fabulous concept and ambition behind that title as well. At what point does the uh, the state of California create a position and tap you to be the first deputy secretary for biodiversity and habitat? Yeah, it, I mean, it's a credit to Secretary Wade Crowfoot, who is you know, he's a deep lover of nature and he recognized that um, prioritizing biodiversity conservation was something we needed to do as a state. Obviously, the Department of Fish and Wildlife does a great job, but he wanted to bring it up to his, you know, the secretary's level. So that was early 2020. There was someone working sort of part-time in that role and they realized the need and the demand was so great that they should make it a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And that part-time person said, I don't want to do this full-time, but I know somebody who might be good at it. (laughs) He (laughs) called me up and said, are you interested? And I said, yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, Started in June, 2020. Middle of the pandemic and a a great time, in fact, to start such a job that needs a lot of the skills that you bring to it, but, but just conceptualizing before you can actually like start rolling it out. I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, it, I hope from my seat, uh, watching what you are doing, that there is just so much thought uh, that it feels so urgent, but rushing um, might do more harm than good. And so Mm. this thoughtfulness and um, hopefully methodical thoroughness that that your your background, what, what one of the things I love is just hearing the extent of your background experience and education of policy and theory and biology and endangered species like you're you're bringing not only the mental mindset but the physical experience as well yeah i really feel like all of the threads of my life are sort of come to coming together in one space right now and mm-hmm. and 30 by 30 really we'll talk about that but it really embodies that it's it's the accumulation of all of the success stories of conservation, all the knowledge that we bring and all the tools we have for conservation, it's bringing them into one space where we can all sort of see ourselves working toward the same goal. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, contextualize for us, the California Natural Resources Agency, because I think I'm right in saying, but you correct me if I'm wrong, that you became this, you took on this full-time role in the state of California prior to 30 by 30 really being fully approved at the federal level and basically conceived and then sent down to the state level. Am I am I right about that? Uh, you're right that I, I started this, this before we... Um... We committed to 30 by 30 at the state, but actually the state did it before the feds. We were okay. first. Um, right. So uh, we led the way. We like to um, we like to take credit for that, although I'm sure the feds were thinking about it, too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was originally conceived as a way to help the secretary, you know, track and amplify and put resources toward conservation of nature writ large, but also yeah. um, another priority, which is something I work on called cutting green tape, which is really intended to 
look for ways to accelerate restoration in particular. So, you know, we've there are lots of habitats that have been really degraded. We need to restore them, but we lose a lot of time through um, permitting, getting funding out the door. So um, partly because of my experience in the regulatory environment, you know, wanting to look for ways to build these programs faster and move them more quickly, help accelerate them. And so I was hired for those two roles. And then 30 by 30 came along actually in October. It was it was moving through the legislature as a as a bill um, that did not pass, but ultimately the governor took it up as an executive order in October 2020. Right. And it does, I mean, not to diminish at all the the pride that I feel in the state of California for having taken this up and moved it forward. It is the newest iteration of in a long line of concepts like this, going back to international treaties and understandings and commitments from countries and regions around the world, trying to, you know, agree to preserve, conserve, vast amounts of biodiversity around the world and, and and sometimes falling short of those commitments, but making those commitments. So so this is not a new concept, but it has been taken up and it has really, I think, landed in a moment where people want to see it happen at all levels. It's not just a big theoretical thing. It is a like, we really need to do this right now. I think that's right. And I, I, I think there is an interesting convergence of you know, events going on, um, you know, one actually is the pandemic and the the realization, you know, so many people were staying really close to home for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and the realization of how important it was to have a nice place to go outside um, to get a break from being in the house. But then the secondarily, how many people didn't have access to the outdoors, didn't have a a refreshing place to take a walk. I got to walk along the American River every day, but many people did not have access to nature in that way. So that was one one thing. I think the pandemic also, I think, helped us realize how fragile we are biologically, maybe. So that's a piece. Um, and then, you know, for better or worse, people are starting to understand that the climate is in fact changing and that we are interdependent on this earth. <laughs> we need a functioning planet to survive. Um, and I think that laid that set the table for biodiversity to really um, be ascendant in people's minds for people to understand how those two pieces come together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you're exactly right. And they started to notice in those, in those intimate moments at home on a trail in a park, mm -hmm. what, what actually wasn't there with them that they remembered, you know, they, they like sort of triggered. Well, when I was a child, there would have been more butterflies, more bugs, more birdsong, more, you know, like it just, everything came together um, to make this very right. apparent and very emotionally charged in a way that I think it hadn't been real to many people before. I think that's right for me. And I think this happened to a lot of people. There were these reports of, you know, parts of the city were quiet and animals were coming right, down right. streets, you oh. know, and, you know, I had that experience, you know, I was, I was sitting, my desk was looking out into my front yard, which I'd lived in this house for 10 years. And I hadn't really looked into my front yard that much, but here I was, you know, looking out the window all day long. And the, the species of birds that came through in the course of a year kind of yeah. blew my mind. Um, and the hummingbirds, I could watch them, you know, a foot from yeah. my face. I think a lot of people had experiences like that as well. Yeah. 
This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with Jennifer Norris, Deputy Secretary of Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency. She is the first in our multi-part series focused on what 30 by 30 is and how it is being seeded across our localities. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I'm really into Jennifer Norris's stance that all conservation problems are actually people problems or people opportunities. What do you say we make them opportunities in which we, as the gardeners of the world, offer the opportunities of place, plants, and planting the solutions? What do you think? Are you in? I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Jennifer Norris, Deputy Secretary of Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency. When we left off, Jennifer was sharing her pandemic experience of working from home and coming to know the plants and animals of her home place in a whole new way, and this experience catalyzing even her commitment to their protection. As we come back, we dive into exactly what the 30 by 30 conservation vision consists of. Well, it's an it's an international movement. You know, California is, is definitely part of it, but it started outside of us uh, to conserve 30% of land and seas by 2030. So 30% by 2030. And over 100 countries have committed to 30 by 30 um, and many subnational governments of which California is one. And the idea is, you know, fundamentally, you know, what threatens our biological diversity is habitat loss. That's the biggest threat um, with climate change, sort of both an accelerator and a, and a, and a threat on its own coming in hot second. Yep. So recognizing that to protect our biodiversity, we need to protect more space. We need to conserve places where species can thrive um, without too much interruption by humans. So protecting from development or extraction doesn't mean no management, but um, it means, you know, ecosystems are sort of at the forefront. Yeah. So not single species, but whole habitats, whole bio right. biodiversity ecosystems, as you say. That's right. And 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 to that point, you know, obviously endangered species protection is really critical. But if we protect habitats before we sort of get to that crisis point, um, we'll have fewer of them, hopefully. So it's sort of really envisioned as a proactive movement as well. Yeah. So how how do you conduct the calculus 
of what is 30, where is that 30, like which 30 in the state of California as an example of how this is being calculated across the globe? I'll tell you that was the hardest part of this whole project, right? Is is what does it mean to conserve a place? I think we all know it intellectually or in maybe emotionally, but how do you put that on paper and how do you draw lines on a map and say this but not that? Mm. And so we we had a year of um asking people around the state about what they thought conservation was, what places they thought were important, um, how conservation gets done in California, really tried to, I say, you know, crowdsource the idea. But, you know, there's so many experts in California that know what they're doing. They know how to protect nature. So we asked them. And fundamentally, uh, we came out with what is um, getting a lot of credit for being a very strong definition of conservation in California. Um, and it's essentially, you know, places that are durably protected for a very long time, if not in perpetuity, and that the primary purpose is protecting uh, biodiversity and ecosystem function. And for California, it turns out, you know, about 24% of our state already meets that definition. And it's at least on land and about 16% in the oceans. Um, and that represents, you know, a wide array of places, you know, from the very the things that you would normally think of, like maybe national parks or ecological reserves or wilderness areas, but also many of our really incredible regional parks um, and regional open spaces and uh, a lot of our working lands in California that are managed under permanent conservation easement mm. um, for protection of things like vernal pools and vernal pool plants, if you can think of that. So when you say working lands, you mean some of our like big grazing or yeah. pasture lands or or even, you know, agricultural lands, if they are managed with this ecological sort of criteria in mind? Yeah. I mean, primarily I'm thinking of grazing and yeah. sustainably managed forests as well. Okay. Um, but a lot of, you know, if you're familiar with California Central Valley, you know, many of our vernal pool grasslands are maintained by grazing mm -hmm. and those are done in cooperation with you know private land landowners that right. uh, manage in a particular way and their land is under easement and so those meet our definition right and I want to go back to this um this idea of crowdsourcing the <laughs> uh the input because I think this is fundamentally transformative in how this is being conducted and who is sitting at this table than many other initiatives like it prior to now. Tell us about the stakeholders and who all was included. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, you know, when I first started my job and we, had, we hadn't even committed to 30 by 30, you know, I, I got this title and I probably took 200 meetings in the first three months. Mm -hmm. And I realized, I don't know if they need me. <laughs> you know, California knows what they're doing. There's so many people doing so many incredible things to protect our natural world. Um, and so my vision even then was, you know, how do we bring all of this knowledge and experience together into one space? And so 30 by 30 was just this gift to me that allowed that to come to fruition. So I think the pandemic was a blessing in a way because we were able to have so many webinars and people could tune in from all over the state. And we did 17 webinars in a little over a year, webinars and meetings and roundtables and panel discussions. Mm -hmm. um, we had online, you know, surveys. We met with California Native American tribes, over 70 of them in multiple different kinds of meetings. 
So really, it was stakeholders from all over the state, you know, not just the traditional environmental groups, but environmental justice groups, um, local community organizations that are looking for more access to nature and our tribal partners. So it was it was a really incredible array, working landowners, like just an incredible array of people um, that came together and gave us their knowledge and expertise and helped us develop our strategy. Right. And I think that shows because one of the important things that was missing, I think, or has been missing for many years, and we are acutely aware of it right now, as we should be. And I see this initiative as meeting this moment beautifully in that, and it goes back to exactly how you introduced yourself, Jen, in that you are as much about people diversity as you are about natural uh, plant and animal biodiversity. And to have this level of human diversity giving input and knowledge and advice on this project I think allows it to stand a better chance than most initiatives before it, because those voices haven't always been there. Mm. Well, I mean, I love how you put that, you know, human diversity and the native plants and animals, you know, we need all of it, right. To function, you need the redundancy, you need the resilience and, and different perspectives. Yeah. That allow us to come up with more creative solutions. So it's been fun. I bet it has. I bet it has been really fun. And I bet it has been really expanding to each person personally being involved in in this level of uh, proactive hope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have 24% of California identified and 16% of the oceans that are identified as already pretty well durably protected. Hmm. How do you then one, make sure that stays in place and then two, actually get us up to the 30% and, and what are those criteria for adding? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. And this has been a bit of a controversial uh, issue for me in that I think there was a lot of desire early on to establish sort of statewide criteria and a statewide uh, set of priorities for what to conserve. And while we did that, we resisted sort of putting together a list of, you know, these are all the places that need protecting now for a variety of reasons. And my, my most fundamental one is that there isn't an ecosystem in California that isn't threatened by habitat loss or climate change or both, right? right? So we we kind of need all of the above. And and the way conservation happens in California and everywhere is local. Local, regional priorities are set for a variety of reasons, like local land use decisions are made, hopefully um, important places to conserve are identified. Um, but conservation happens when people come together and say, this place is important for a variety of reasons. And they build a coalition to protect it. They identify opportunities for funding or they go to their federal partners and say, you know, we want this place to be redesignated. It always happens with local um, uh, initiatives. So we didn't want to have sort of a top-down state level um, set of this must be done and this should not be done. Rather, we we worked hard to get funding um, and we put together you know, across multiple programs, close to $2 billion that are available now for habitat restoration and grassland protection and um, technical assistance to help you figure out where those places are. So we have funding in place and the, and we've set some 
higher level principles that we want to see implemented, our key objectives for protecting biodiversity, for advancing um, access to nature, and for using lands to sequester more carbon or build resilience to climate change. So we've set those out. Um, and any project that sort of fits those broader criteria, um, we want to fund and we want to support and help get those done. Right. Does that include even say, you know, like in my own town, um, we have a, a big controversial development being being discussed right now. This is known as, you know, Valley's Edge, which seeks to develop something like 1,400 acres of intact and highly pressured, as we know, around our state, oak, grass, and woodland, with a proposal for 2,700 housing units, only a tiny fraction of which are considered to be affordable housing. And so the total goes against a long-standing master plan by significantly increasing suburban brawl for the city of Chico. And this, of course, is adding to the degradation of the entire region's air, water, and biodiversity protections. And it further decreases fire buffers between municipalities. So that's a great example. So in that case, you know, as part of that development, Yep. One, there will, if it comes to pass, there will be uh, requirements for mitigation, for example, right? And so um, where there are places that are avoided and protected, ideally, you know, usually the regulatory agencies require that they be set aside and protected in perpetuity. So those acres actually will contribute because yep. hopefully the most sensitive places will be avoided. And then if there's other mitigation that goes with that, um, sometimes that comes in the form of a fund or some other, you know, places that get protected as an offset. So that's that's a very specific case, but that's part of our toolbox is those protected places that are offsetting development that, you know, there are places we need housing, but we also want to make sure that we protect habitat and kind. But then also, you know, there might be, there might just be a local property that you know, a land trust in your neighborhood has yes. been eyeing for a very long time. And they can come to the Wildlife Conservation Board, for example, and say, you know, we've got this thousand acre parcel that we really want to see protected and it protects all of these species. And, it, right. you know, and here's our proposal and we want to work with you to get that done. So that's those are the kinds of ways. So we've, you know, we have lots of different avenues, but um, right. that's a good example. And so that takes us right into contextualize like the hierarchy because you just mentioned a big sum of money where's mm -hmm. the money coming from how is it being allocated so that if somebody is listening to this and they're like oh wait our land trust could actually go and work on this project with them like where do like how is that working and then where are people going to find out more information ah so glad you asked that so high level you know it's it's $2 billion in lots of different pots of money. Um, and, and not all of them are obviously, they're not all tagged 30 by 30, but you know, any way that we're working on habitat restoration or habitat protection across our state um, is going to contribute to our goal. But we do have specifically in this last budget cycle, there was a, a set aside specifically to help implement the governor's executive order, which includes 30 by 30, as well as some other programs like healthy soils. And that funding um, has been allocated to multiple different programs. So the Wildlife Conservation Board I mentioned, they um, were just given about $200 million. Um, there's another chunk that went to the Department of Fish and Wildlife. 
our um, conservancies across the state uh, received funding. So I'm not going to go through the whole list because uh, I have an even better source for your listeners. We we just we're just about to finish a webinar series where we have I have sat down with each of these program leads and had them walk us through each of their programs and what the funding opportunities are Uh, and how to apply. uh, And so they're 30 minute segments. mm -hmm. They're on our website uh, at californianature.ca.gov. So there'll be 10 of them. And there's one or two people I interview per 30 minutes. So it's real quick. Awesome. But you can, you can go there and get more information about um, how to, how to access these funds. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I will make sure to have all of those links in the social media and in the the um, great. web posting for, for the episode. So it is a big project. It is an ambitious and complex and multifaceted project. What does success look like in your view? And how is this going to be evaluated over time in order to measure that success, Jen? Well, fundamentally, success is reaching 30%, but I know we're going to do that. Um, But also, um, really making sure we do protect those most important places. And so I didn't mention, but I should have, that a companion to our strategy is that we built with the co-op, with the support of Esri, the um, you know global leader in geographic information systems, digital mapping, they helped us build an interactive online map that will show you where biodiversity hotspots are in your region, where there are rare endemic plants, where there are um, wildlife crossings in need, uh, right? So you can actually play with these maps and you can compare them to places that we say are already protected mm-hmm. and maybe block up uh, pieces of land. So there's there's a way to sort of game out um, and find the most important places. Mm-hmm. And we will be using that system to track our progress toward 30% and, and evaluating how we're doing um, broadly across the state in terms of um, you know, improving conservation across the different ecosystems. So while I said we didn't have a, you know, high level priority, we are going to, of course, track, you know, if all the resources go to sort of one ecosystem, we would want to adjust and, and, you know, make sure that we put funding into other places that maybe are getting less attention or go work with those or with those communities to um, help advance some conservation in those places, um, particularly for ecosystems that really are in need. You mentioned, you know, Oak Woodlands, you know, those are disappearing fast. Yeah. Um, we did put funding into the Oak Woodland program, program at the Wildlife Conservation Board because we recognize the need and there's so much demand. So we'll be adjusting and evaluating as we go uh, to really, and, you know, and the world will continue to change. We will we will see the effects of climate change. And so we'll be, um, we want to have a comprehensive pro- program so we can be flexible um, and nimble and go to where the need arises. Right. Will there be sort of um, like report cards out each year that the program is in place um, as we get towards 2030? Yes. yes. So okay. we um, we will be putting out an annual, you know, status report of how we're moving along on each of our, so we have 10 pathways to 30 by 30, sort of 10 10 different tools that we can apply, you know, mitigations one, uh, acquisitions another. So we'll put out a a status of how we're moving along on each of those, as well as uh, an update on um, how close we're getting to 30%. 
information about the different kinds of projects that we funded. Uh, so that will be coming out uh, annually. And in fact, there was legislation passed last year to uh, require the resources agency to do that. So Great. we will be we will be issuing that. And I hope also having an annual get together where we share information and best mm -hmm. practices and lessons learned. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to that as well. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with Jennifer Norris, Deputy Secretary of Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency. She's sharing with us today some of the history and the vision for the 30 by 30 conservation initiatives as they are being not only envisioned, but beginning to be implemented in the state of California. We'll be back. Stay with us. Hey, so I am also holding on to the built-in metrics to quantify progress for the 30 by 30 implementers so that they are held accountable to milestones and maybe especially and building in the idea of gathering the community together to share knowledge and share and celebrate our successes while never taking our eyes and hearts off what still needs doing, what we can all still do. Accountability and celebration. These seem important to build into our individual gardening lives too. What do you think? Do you see some of your gardening methods or maps or moments as being about accountability or communal or individual celebration? If so, I'd love to hear more about this. You know how to reach me, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. And thank you to everyone who reached out over the winter holidays, who donated, who shared Cultivating Place forward on social media, or even better, just gardener to gardener. That's how we best cultivate all of our places and see ourselves communally working toward the same goal. And it's one of the ways we keep growing with accountability and with celebration. And we're back now to our conversation with Jennifer Norris, Deputy Secretary of Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency. As we come back, Jennifer shares with us some of the early success stories of this 30 by 30 work and the hope it embodies. At the Native Plant Society meeting, you know, there was a, the presentation on co-management of lands with um, California Native American tribes right before mm -hmm. mine. Yeah. And you know, that is something that different land trusts are working through the process of, you know, how do we effectively co-manage? How do we support our tribal partners in um, providing access, not just to cultural resources, but to the opportunity to steward? And, you know, these are still real estate transactions and there's lots of lessons to be learned. And so the more we can bring people together to sort of not have to reinvent those complicated parts yeah. and focus on the ones that are, you know, uplifting and fun, that's going to, help us move faster together. Yeah. You know, you're, you're into this two, almost three years now. Yeah. What have been the greatest 
challenges or stumbling blocks and lessons learned maybe for you? I mean, I think the lesson I always learn is that there's more knowledge in the group, right, than in the mm -hmm. individual. So mm -hmm. I'm always more successful when I slow down and listen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the challenge of this of jobs like these is that we have a short time, you know, it's a political appointment. So you always are aware that your time is short. And so we want to get a lot done in, in the time that we have with the opportunity we have. So there's a lot of running um, at a fast clip, which, you know, you can kind of run too fast past yourself sometimes. So I have to remember to slow down occasionally, breathe. <laughs> yeah. I think that California's implementation of 30 by 30 is being watched by the rest of the world, certainly mm -hmm. by the rest of the U.S. How do you think we're doing? Are we being a mentor? Are we being the model we want to be to make sure that other states and regions, if not countries, keep going and keep having some of these lessons learned? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, and I, I am incredibly proud of California, and I'm also aware that we live in a special place and that the support for conservation is probably unparalleled. I, I can't imagine any other place that has so much support for conservation as we do here, as well as laws and programs and approaches and you know creative ways. I would say, so we are going to Montreal in two weeks to the Conference of Parties on Biodiversity. And California has been a sought after participant. They really want us to show up and be part of that conversation in particular because of our leadership on 30 by 30, as well as other things. But on 30 by 30, we're getting a lot of credit for our strong definition of conservation, mm -hmm. that it really wants to see durability and ecosystem protection first and foremost. You know, you can get to 30% if you just pick places that are that are not developed, but we we are setting a very high bar. But also, yeah, our commitment to equity and to tribal partnership um, is getting a lot of attention. You know, at the Conference of Parties, Indigenous voices are really uh, taking center stage. And I think um, California is showing how to get that done and uh, and what that kind of commitment can look like. You know, we set aside $100 million dollars just for use by tribes in advancing our nature-based solutions work. And that is nowhere near enough, but it is a really, sends a really strong signal about how important we think this work is and how important it is to bring our tribal partners into this conversation and to really return stewardship to those that have been stewarding California forever. Yeah, yeah. So if you had takeaways and calls to action that you would like listeners to, to know about so that they can feel like they're part or helping or participating in any way, what would you have them do? What would be your, your calls to action? My calls to action are one, fundamentally understand how important it is to protect our natural world and talk to people about it. Um, talk to your neighbors about it. Talk to your legislators about it, your local planning department about it. Spread the word because it's really important. And I, I think I've learned a lot through this process just how valuable the voices of the community are in mm -hmm. getting things done. Mm 
we wouldn't have gotten this level of funding without the level of support that we had across California for advancing this work. So we need that to continue and to show up in different places than um, than it normally does, you know, into a broader array of people. I want to see this movement grow. I want to see it explode. And then I would say, you know, back to our earlier conversation, cultivate your place. <laughs> yeah. You know, to use the title of your podcast, you know, plant native plants in your yard and invite the monarchs in, um, take care of your trees, because we need these natural places everywhere. Not all of them are going to, quote unquote, count for 30 by 30. But the, the goal is to protect our biodiversity. And we need healthy soil, healthy plants, pollinators, all of those um, parts of the ecosystem to function. And it can make a difference if you have a healthy backyard um, and and birds can come through on their way on their way south for the winter. So in that same vein, you know, when you look forward and you look to 2027 and, you know, we're, we're getting closer or we're almost there, what besides just hitting the number, what are your greatest hopes for the impact of this work. And, and maybe there are anecdotes you'd like to share about changes in mindset or changes in comprehension that you've already experienced in these many meetings and webinars and roundtables you've had that you'd like to share with people. For me, looking forward, I think what I want to see more of, and I've seen this already, is this appreciation for how interdependent we are on the natural world and on each other. And what I I love about 30 by 30 is it really brings all of us across the globe that are working on this movement into one frame. And mm -hmm. it it makes me feel as someone who's been in conservation, conservation can be sad. You you see places you love disappear. And 30 by 30 gives you this help gives me this sense that there are people all over the planet sort of in the same struggle with me and making progress with me together. And that just gives me this sense of hope. And so I hope that in 2027, there's an even you know, bigger community of people across the globe that is you know, all pulling in the same direction, taking care of the planet together. Is there anything you would like to add about the importance of this work or some aspect of this work that we haven't yet touched on, Jennifer? I don't think so. I think we've covered it all. I just think it's it's an opportunity. 30 by 30 is an opportunity for hope, for progress, uh, to work together in voluntary um, partnership. And I think it's something that we should grab onto and push as hard as we can, as fast as we can. Thank you very much for your work and for being a guest on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Jennifer Norris is the Deputy Secretary for Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency, where she is leading the state's 30 by 30 initiatives being carried out across the landscape by many agencies and organizations. She also oversees a project known as Cutting Green Tape in order to support landscape scale habitat restoration on the ground. 
For my full conversation with Jennifer Norris and much more information on the 30 by 30 initiatives at federal, state, and local levels across agencies, make sure to check out this week's Cultivating Place podcast at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I love you more and more. Speaking of plants and place, of biodiversity and habitat protection, this week I want to check in on the alders. In the last week in my garden, we've had close to five inches of fully welcome rain, which has translated to a good bit of snow in higher elevations and not far from us along a nearby creek, an older alder already draped in its beautiful and characteristic chartreuse green January catkins came crashing down. John and I clipped back some of the catkin-laden branches, and I made a New Year's wreath for the front gate out of these branches. You might be familiar with the idea of a Celtic or Ogum alphabet of trees, wherein alder corresponds with the letter F. You might also be familiar with a Celtic calendar of trees, wherein each month is actually designated by a specific tree. Now, I am in Northern California, and I am of only vaguely Celtic descent, but if January as a month was going to be represented by a tree in my region, I'd definitely pick an alder to hold this spot because of the alder's annual and vibrant show of fresh green fertility kicking off every new year. Alder trees are within the genus Alnus, which has about 30 species, 10 of which are native to North America and four of which are native to California. All but one of these species, that one found in South America, are native to the Northern Hemisphere. All of the species are water-loving, and all of the cultural mythology around alders refers back to this as them being a sign of fresh-moving, year-round water. Alders have small pollen-bearing flowers, which are aggregated into droopy, slender catkins that measure two to eight inches long, so fairly long and drapey. The catkins form clusters of three to five of them occurring together, so they make a really beautiful effect on the tree across their flowering season. The small seed-bearing flowers on the alders also form catkins, but these are significantly smaller than the pollen-producing catkins, and they are only maybe 0.2 inches to 0.8 inches long. And these start to appear almost like a little cone from a conifer, but they are not cones. They are, in fact, a form of a catkin. These seed-bearing catkins occur in clusters of only two or three. Within their seed-bearing catkins, the ones that look like little conifer cones, alders bear winged nutlets, which are enclosed inside this woody catkin and are dispersed once that catkin matures and opens. Both pollen and seed-producing catkins are found on the same tree. 
Alders typically grow in cool, moist woodlands and forests, and they have nitrogen-fixing bacteria on their root nodules, which add considerable fertility to ecosystems through their decaying plant parts, whether that's their fallen leaves, their fallen catkins, or in the case of our completely fallen over tree. The alders' leaves and twigs provide important food for browsing wildlife, and birds eat the alder buds and their seeds. The white alder, Alnus rhombifolia, which is the one that grows along streams and permanent creeks of my area, and all the way north, in fact, to British Columbia, and down south the full length of the state of California, are shade-tolerant, relatively quick-growing, and typically form a small to medium-sized tree with a single trunk, although the alders will grow in colonies of these single-trunked trees. Mature alders can grow up to 80 feet tall, and they create a narrow canopy with trunks ranging at maturity from 1 to 2 feet in diameter. However, because they grow along ever-changing streams and creeks, Alders are often moved or removed by seasonal high water, and they will succumb to drought with prolonged low water or no water when creeks or streams dry up. And so their colonies ebb and flow with their water sources. The white alder, Alnus rhombifolia, is the earliest blooming of the California alders, and all along the creeks near us in interior northern California, these trees are right now draped in their bright spring green male and female catkins, which they will hold through wind and cold and frost and even snow. These showy green catkins are often accentuated by clusters of last year's dried, dark cinnamon-colored, seed-bearing, cone-like catkins. Right now, the bright, green, drippy male and female catkins are lighting up the otherwise dark and leafless, deciduous riparian corridors. The green clusters glisten and shimmer with raindrops. The entire genus is known for its medicinal and dye pot uses across its native ranges, but as the California Natural History Guide's Book of Trees and Shrubs of California states, white alder's greatest value perhaps lies in its ability to protect watersheds and provide wildlife habitat. These roles are especially critical in areas subject to development, and I would add critical in these times. As we continue in our biodiversity and habitat series, and we consider our own gardens through this lens, if you have year-round water or you can dedicate some consistent water, consider the alder as your newest tree family member. Join us again next week when we continue our multi-part series to kick off 2023 devoted to the global endeavors to securely preserve 
30% of our world's biodiversity by 2030 when we're in conversation with June Bando, the new executive director of the California Native Plant Society, and Leave O'Keefe, CNPS's senior director of public affairs. The two will be sharing more about the role of Native Plant Societies writ large in supporting, and in many cases in leading, local 30 by 30 restoration projects. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, empowering women and helping preserve the planet through environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.